Hey, Matt. Alex, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good. It's a beautiful day. We are sitting here in lovely Montreal looking at Mount Royal from my apartment this time. Change of scenery. Exactly. Um, so, we have some interesting news to talk about. Uh, a few days ago, there was a ruling in court about a company called Uber that you may have heard of. Uh, Matt, you want to walk us through what that ruling was? I actually don't know as much about it as, as you do, but the, the big uh, question um, was whether or not drivers for Uber were employees or contractors. Uh, and I think there was a lot of misdirection in the news about this when, when the ruling first came out, people saying this is a landmark ruling against uh, Uber using their drivers as contractors. Uh, they're going to have to change everything. Uh, but I think later there was some a lot of retractions uh, by a lot of the news uh, outlets, and they said it, it only applies to this one driver. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's still a larger question. Of yeah, the debate. I, I think we should we should assume that this case with one driver one time is naturally going to turn into a new case about all drivers. And it, seems, it seems like it's going that way, and not just for Uber, but for this whole new on-demand economy where you can now push a button on your phone and get a cab or a taco or some mail delivered or anything that you want if you live in San Francisco and soon to be everywhere else. I think this, this harks back to a, a larger spectrum of, of uh, I guess, employee-company relations where sometimes unions are strong, sometimes there's a lot of anti-union sentiment, and, and now we're just swung to the other end of the spectrum, which is uh, taking people's excess capacity uh, and they can use it on demand, as you said, or I guess um, provide it on demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's very much swung to the contractor side of the spectrum. Yeah. If, you, if you take the argument down to first principles, it really comes down to is Uber a company that has people who provide a service for it, or is Uber a logistics platform that allow people who have some time on their hands to find work and then do that work? And depending on your interpretation of it being A or B, that says a lot both about how you think of Uber, probably, and how you're going to view this problem in general. What's the case for both A and B? So the case for Uber, I'm going to start out with the case for Uber employees being contractors. Uh, Uber lays out a fairly sophisticated argument saying, look, if you are an Uber driver, you work for yourself. Uber is a platform that you use to go find passengers who are looking for drivers. Uh, They say, you do not, you get to choose when you work. You can start working at any time. You can stop working at any time. You don't have to pick up any passenger that you don't want to. Everything is up to you. We are simply the tool that you use in order to find that work. And that argument resonates a fair amount with me. But on the other hand, the reverse argument is, which is being made by the defendants, uh, by the, um, by the, 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 the prosecutor's case in this particular case, saying, no, this driver should be treated as an employee. Because Uber is waving their hands and saying a whole lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, these people do work for you, and Uber profits because of that work. It's really, that's a, that's a bottom line case. Work is work, no matter how you try to dress it up. Do you know how Uber sees it? I mean, I know legally they argue that, that it's the logistics platform argument, because for them, obviously, contractors are cheaper than employees. That's how they prefer to see the world. Absolutely. But uh, what, what, I guess, pushes it in either direction? I mean, maybe if... Uh, I, so Alex recently made uh, the latest book on, on Elon Musk, which was a great read. But, but one of the things that I didn't know too much about uh, Tesla, one of Musk's companies, is that they do all this electric car work for uh, other companies like, mm-hmm. like Daimler and um, Toyota. So they're, they're taking this uh, if you will, electric car platform or, or all their technology there uh, and almost licensing it out to other companies. So 
I guess if, if Uber was truly a logistics platform, you'd see Uber for many more things instead of just this one service. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a whole number of thoughts about that. We're going to get to that in a second. Um, really, I think it, the case for Uber being an employer and not a tool for contractors to use essentially hinges down to, you know, if I am spending, if I'm working 40 hours a week driving people for Uber, then Uber owes me the kind of responsibilities that an employer typically has surrounding their employees, right? I should have some sort of safety net. I should have some sort of job security. I should have the basic rights and protections that are afforded employees by law in this country. Uber, of course, doesn't particularly want to do any of that. That, you know, makes their business model much harder to execute on, first of all. But... In my mind, this is this problem is going to come down to, first of all, like when are these employees even necessary in the first place? They're necessary when there's some sort of work that a machine does not do yet, which we'll see how long that's going to take. And two, they're necessary whenever there is some sort of service element involved where people still value a person delivering that service. That's how I look at that. But I guess, so if you, if you go back to, is it a logistics platform or is it actually a service provided by Uber? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I call an Uber, I'm not calling up an independent taxi. I'm, I'm calling someone from the Uber brand. And that's quite important, especially from a competitive angle, right? Mm-hmm. The Uber brand has value over, say, the Lyft brand or, or other similar services. Mm-hmm. So that, that, I think, adds weight to the fact that it's not just a logistical platform where people mm-hmm. can give their free time, but, but it's actually doing work for Uber. Uber is the one who, who benefits at the end of the day. Yes. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. Is Uber not unlike Alibaba in the sense that you go to Alibaba to work with someone to get some sort of good flowing through, some sort of good from them, but at the end of the day, for the most part, you're relying on Alibaba to be that brand and that stamp of quality. And that guarantee that you're dealing with something somewhat legitimate. Hmm. Is that not the case? I think it very much is the case. Yeah. Um, I guess the, 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 the question in front of Uber then is to say, like, all right, why, you know, why is it that they really want the status quo to stay the same? Um, and who are they competing against? Because that's going to make a lot of difference. Hmm. Okay. I guess I'll start with saying, who do, you, who do you see as Uber's biggest competition? You know, the the easy answer would would be a similar service like Lyft. But but maybe their biggest competition is is legislation and and economy laws. Or, sorry, uh, labor laws. That's that's not a bad way to look at it. Um, I look at Uber and see something very similar to Amazon fulfillment services and Amazon web services. (laughs) In that, if you have a platform that makes it so easy to... In the case of Amazon, you know, host something or have your fulfillment being done, or an Uber, have it so easy to bring things or people from A to B, you can start to rely on that service as your logistical medium. You can start to count on it. You can start to, it becomes something that you can take for granted. And if you actually look at Uber's mission statement as it's evolved over the years, it reflects this change. It used to be everyone's private driver. Now it's something along the lines of transportation for everyone, as available and as ubiquitous as running water. <laughs> yeah, so they're trying to brand themselves as a as logistics as a utility. Mm-hmm. Except for 
Breaking, except for not with utility profits, but really with monopoly profits. Well, does that matter in the equation? Is an interesting, interesting question. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about the Uber-Amazon comparison, actually. And it had me thinking a, a while ago, maybe a year ago, I was wondering over whether Amazon would want to buy Uber. Um, now I don't think they can. Yeah, maybe they little, could buy... A little expensive. A little expensive. They could buy Lyft. I don't know if that would be as good. <laughs> well, Yeah. I mean, and, and isn't that something that Uber is, is looking at in general in terms of uh, delivering things to people? Oh, 100% they are. Um, if the, the way Amazon sees the world is that if, I'm, if I purchase something and it shows up on my door at some point in the near future, the hard part is finding that thing, deciding to purchase it, and then having that purchase process go smoothly, and then they outsource the transportation to someone else. But at the moment, UPS, maybe drones and house later, who knows. In Uber's view of the world, is if you want something to come to you, it's immaterial whatever you decide to purchase. You're going to purchase something. The key activity in question is getting it to you sufficiently quickly and reliably that you feel confident to make those on-demand purchases. Right? I'm not going to order a taco on demand delivered to me if I know there's a 65% chance that that taco makes it to me before it gets cold. But if there's a 95% chance, hell yeah, I'm going to get myself a taco right now. Well, so then Uber has an advantage over Amazon because by using uh, real people in the real world in their excess capacity, I'm coming back from the nail salon, I'm coming back from work, I can pick something off. And, and again, because they have, like we talked about last time, the entire math department of Carnegie Mellon, they can figure out that, hey, if I just you know make one minor detour, it puts, adds two minutes to my time, which saves off uh, a delivery time. That's funny. They're, they're a distributed network, and, and that's something that Amazon, you know, no matter how many drones they have, wouldn't be able to match. Oh. So that's an interesting direction for the company. Oh, for sure. I think, again, Uber has a huge advantage if you consider the, the, the possibility that when people purchase things or they go places or they require anything to move from A to B, they, the, their likelihood of purchasing that thing or of moving that thing or person is related to the likelihood of the ease that they can get it. Whereas for Amazon, Amazon's thesis is the opposite. It's people want to buy stuff. They don't really care how it gets there. They want it to happen quickly and efficiently and easily, but what they ultimately care about is the stuff they're buying. So back to employees or contractors. Yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a, a bit of detour. On the topic of on-demand work, uh, it seemed pretty clear as a foregone conclusion among many circles uh, that the world is going to be moving towards on-demand access to work, on-demand access to quick contract jobs. Do you think that's still the case? Does this ruling change anything about that? Not this ruling specifically, but I think the outcome of the war between Uber and whatever... Uh, legislation they come up against. I think this whole on-demand economy, especially when it comes to uh, the individual providing a service, it all comes down to uh, excess capacity. Mm -hmm. right? I was actually thinking on my, on my walk over here, you see all these parked cars that are not in use, and that's probably a phenomenon that, that our uh, grandchildren or maybe even children won't even experience, mm -hmm. right? because we have this asset that's not being used, and you see this everywhere. Uh, you have photographers who lend out their their high-end cameras for a day. You see mm -hmm. people letting out their cars, Airbnb letting out their apartments. So I think what, what the constraint there is is, is excess capacity. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that now uh, with people being able to drive for Uber and, and similar services, 
not only do they have a vehicle as excess capacity, but they have time as excess capacity if we think as time as an asset. Right. And the question is whether or not that will, whether or not, well, I guess whether or not that's zero sum or, or whether or not, uh, well, time is, oh, fuck. <laughs> we can edit that part out. What I was trying to get at is um, it all comes down to what you can share. Mm-hmm. And today, concrete assets are shared, houses, cars. But with Uber, there's the time factor that, that time is an asset that's shared. Well, the move it, the move away from contractors towards employees, should this come to pass, would almost certainly restrict the ability to share time as an asset. Exactly. Right? If, you're, if, if I drive for Uber, and if I'm an Uber employee instead of an independent contractor, Uber can now forbid me from working for anybody else. Whether they would or not is another story, but they could. They could place restrictions on what I can do with my time should I be an employee of Uber's. I could be not allowed to work for competitors. I could be required to work with a certain percentage of my time, for instance. And then you have to ask the question, would this shift necessarily be worse for Uber than it would be for anybody else? I would argue that although it might what might be annoying for Uber, it would be devastating to the I guess what you would call tier two on demand economy companies hmm. because now if I'm somebody who spends my time and earns my living driving around stuff in the, the on demand economy, am I going to go with Uber or am I going to go with a tier two company that I don't know is going to exist in a couple of years? Uber is going to get all the employees because it's going to be winner take all. It's going to be completely winner take all. Well, well, going back to the point about control. If Uber does control your time, you're very much an employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other, one of the other um, pillars of whether or not you're an employee or a contractor is who supplies the tools. And in Uber's case, you're supplying the car. It's not Uber supplying the car. But I think actually one of the, the um, points in this ruling that came out earlier this week was that uh, Uber doesn't let any car come in. Right? It has to be of a certain uh, year, and it has to be serviced within a certain amount of time. And to a certain extent, they start controlling... Uh, both your time and your tools, uh, and that pushes things in the direction of, of being employed. Mm-hmm. Um, in the car this morning, I was speaking with my friend Brian, who is a professional architect that works as a contractor for a lot of jobs, and he had a very interesting point. And he knows a lot, obviously, about the construction industry. He said, in the construction industry, you're dealing with contractors a lot, because if you want to put in some drywall on some project... You don't need to necessarily have that expertise. You bring in a drywall professional and they come and do the job. They're probably going to be a contractor. That does not mean that you cannot mandate that this contractor possesses certain skills and certain tools. You can say, if you're going to work my drywall for me, I want you to be certified by this body. I want to see these qualifications and I want to see these approved skills. Uber does that to some extent. Like you said, they only allow certain cars but on the other hand, they seem to leave a lot of it to the free market, free information era where if a driver sucks and they get a couple of zero star ratings, Uber's going to think about firing them, right? The question is, does that work better or worse in an era where information has gone from scarce to abundant? Well, it certainly works in the favor of, well, actually in this case it works in the favor of just about everybody. The driver has to provide a better service, which works out for Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, if the driver doesn't provide this good service, Uber can let them go. It doesn't tarnish their brand. And the, the consumer benefits in both cases. Well, it sure, it, it sure doesn't work in the favor of um, people who have spent a lot of time and money working to purchase taxi medallions. But Definitely not. <laughs> well, there's always, there's always been a question there that I've, I've always, and maybe you can enlighten me, that I've always been a bit confused about with respect to Uber, is that there is this whole concept of 
a taxi company where, where you need uh, this license. Mm-hmm. How, how can Uber uh, operate in, side by side with, with someone like a taxi? Oh, be, uh, the reason why Uber has been skirting regulations for such a long time while claiming not to be a cab service is they say that they are a private car service where it is somebody who happens to offer rides to people as independent contractors, but they're not, they're not a taxi service. It's, it's because of this contractor on-demand relationship that they can get away with this. If, in fact, Uber um, sees a ruling that says, no, your employees are all, uh, your, your, your workers are all employees, that is actually a fairly significant blow to their story that they are not a taxi company. But at this point, I suspect that they are fully entrenched deep enough into most cities uh, that it won't matter. It's too late. The taxi companies have lost the war by now. Unless they would have to purchase medallions if that was the, the outcome. I mean, that would be disastrous. I suspect, well, I suspect what they would do is what they've been doing in... There are, there are certain cities, uh, like Toronto, for instance, that is not allowing Uber cabs to operate without medallions. But what Uber does is it flies in the face of that and it says, no, you guys can go operate anyway. We'll pay your fines. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in doing so, create a lot of goodwill among the population by doing so. You know, there was a giant strike by all the Toronto taxi cabs... Um, a few weeks ago to protest Uber. They blocked a whole bunch of streets. And then, what do you think Uber did? It almost seems like whenever taxi uh, taxi drivers do this, it's actually great free marketing for Uber. They did it in the UK a few years ago. And I remember reading about Uber's numbers following that protest. And they went to the roof. It's, of course. It's the best kind of publicity. It's, it's this sort of behavior by, by taxi drivers that just pisses people off and drives demand for, for things like Uber anyways. Uh-huh. I don't know how often you take cabs in, in Montreal, but uh, here the airport is is forty minutes from downtown on a, on a semi busy day, mm-hmm. and then you can take a bus, but it's it's much more convenient to take a cab. And I actually take that bus. I find it to be quite tolerable. Ah, it's well, a, yeah. When I when I fly out of Montreal, it's usually very early in the morning or very late uh, at night. Okay, and, that's true. Uh, uh, the thing that bugs me is is the, there's always this this tactic by Montreal cab drivers that they don't take debit or credit cards. They only take cash, and often they only tell you when you get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every time this happens, me, I just go, man, I wish I wish I'd taken an Uber instead. Yeah. Uh, Uber at airports is interesting um, in that that's still sort of like the last bastion of the cabs uh, where they have green territory that Uber can't go. So you see a lot of interesting behavior where someone will call an Uber and the Uber will be like, all right, I'm at parking lot A. <laughs> you know, yeah. come meet me there. And it's so funny to see the length, this, the length that people will go to take an Uber as opposed to a cab. Even though in this, in this case the Uber is clearly less convenient, but people who have come to associate that brand with quality and you know I don't have to pay everything is done automatically through my credit card it's a nice experience people really like it. Well, so it, it clearly is a is a better experience than the cab, mm-hmm. um, and so an interesting point and and maybe a, a nice direction to take the the chat is where does this go if if this trend continues uh, if if the Uber experience keeps. Uh, completely obliterating the taxi experience. Uber continues to grow. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for uh, employees at large and commuters at large? Right. Uh, so one of the things that, that is is fairly evident is, you know, the the driver, the, the human driver for Uber is, is only a temporary stopgap for the company. That is what they are saying. <laughs> well, and, and one of the, the things that I found fascinating is is uh, whenever I'm in San Francisco, I, I use Ubers instead of taxis, and then I always ask this question: I say, how do you feel about the fact that, that this is a temporary thing. And, and what amazes me often is that the drivers just kind of 
pretend that, that this is a, a very permanent thing. They say, oh, no, no, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I say, what do you think? Five years, 10 years? They say, oh, much, much more than that. I, I, this is secure for me. Mm. And it's interesting that, that the drivers themselves don't see this as, as the trend. If self-driving cars really on are on the horizon, and let's let's be generous, let's say 15 years for a median expected point where you'll have a substantial number of self-driving cars on the road. Um, consensus among the TechCrunch crowd seems to be that these self-driving cars are probably not going to be owned by anyone. They're going to be owned by either large hedge funds or large pension plans in some capacity, and that the access to them will be leased out to companies like Uber on, you know, in terms of large contracts. And then access can even be given to individual people should you choose to lease one on a need-to-need basis. If that's the case, and the employee is made truly redundant, then I think Uber needs to view this shift in what their drivers are as changing the hurdle rather than changing the long-term business model. On the other hand, if Uber decides, look, self-driving cars are going to be great for a lot of things, but there is still an element to our service that is human service, then you start to get kind of a, a, a two tiers of Uber service where there's do you care about the experience? Do you care about having a driver who takes care of you? Or do you not care? You just want the cheapest option. Well, that's also making an assumption that the automated experience can't be better than the human, human experience. That's true. Well, I, I suspect that that association will die a very, very slow death if it ever does die. Um, hmm. I think the experience of you know getting limoed around and taken care of by a chauffeur and have, just having someone there who is attending to you, adds a lot of value, I think, even if it's totally fluffy value that doesn't really matter. This is is the same reason people buy luxury goods or go to restaurants where a maitre d' takes care of you, right? There's something about having a person at your service that is viewed as, you know, something desirable. I I could buy the maitre d' argument, but but even in in the car, I mean, I could see that... uh... What we, the, how we spend our, our time in transit will change. It'll become a much mm-hmm. more, or it has the potential to become a much more personal experience. If I, if I don't have to deal with a person in the car, well, first of all, I don't have to deal with driving the car myself. Right. Uh, it obviously becomes uh, a time where I have, I have more productive time, and I can use it however mm-hmm. I want. Yeah. Uh, but if there's no one else in the car with me, there, there's a whole larger swath of, of personal activities that I can do, or just behaviors that that I can I can undertake. Mm-hmm. So so maybe it'll become seen in the future as I order up one of these uh, cars that's owned by someone else, and I have thirty minutes of quiet time, mm-hmm. which which may be highly valued in, in a world where these sort of things exist. Yeah. Um, either way, so let's take both cases. If I'm an if I'm an employee of Uber's and I spend my time forty hours a week driving people around. And then self-driving cars start to appear, and they get usable to the point that they can start to fully replace human drivers for the lowest end of the experience, which is probably going to be UberX, I would think, the the group carpooling service. Um, Does this become a situation where Uber employees will become phased out, or does it become a case where they 
can augment this service in some way. Like, I'm wondering if they could be useful for different purposes. Well, purely, for, that, that's a great point. Because purely from a bottom line perspective, the the drivers are the, are the largest line item that Uber has. Yes. Mm-hmm. But if you can turn that into a premium experience, mm-hmm. uh, then they don't become a, a cost. They become a, a value add to your service. Right. Is it Does Uber fancy itself being the... I mean, again, if you look, if you look, Uber's mission statement certainly suggests that they see themselves being the universal transportation provider. Um, but it could be that they'd be content to own the top ten percent, much like Apple currently does with the smartphone market, right? Hmm. What if Uber were to position themselves to say, "We're going to go after the ten percent of people who have all the disposable money to spend." And everybody else's transportation means can be met by whoever else, the androids of the transportation world. Well, going the the other uh, side of that argument is is they could just become the Amazon of the world, like you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. and you could just have these machines driving around in these in these uh, distributed networks where you know car shows up at the grocery store, someone drops in my groceries, and it shows up at my house, and there's no human involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an, a, a new expansion of the argument because with with self driving cars, and and maybe Uber's. Uh, sandbox for this will we'll still be in the era of humans driving these cars, but this this distributed delivery network where any service can be made more efficient because that delivery vehicle, literally the, the vehicle that's delivering something to my house, may be a mile from my house when I right. pick something up, instead of at, at Amazon's um, facility 23 miles down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, well, while, while self-driving cars and the elimination of the requirement for a human in the car is one interesting narrative... You're absolutely right that all of Uber's grand plans to become this universal logistics and transportation provider don't actually depend on it, because people can do that work, right? People have certainly demonstrated to be willing to do all kinds of work, from dropping people off to picking up groceries to delivering mail to shipping packages to any sorts of other things. If, if you look at this from a truly macro scale, what becomes interesting, and, and, and really, really truly macro, like let's zoom out. 50 years and think of what it might be at that point sure uh there's this whole concept that that automation and and um ai and robotics will start replacing some of the more blue collar uh elements of the, of the workforce well so, that's been happening for 100 years so extrapolate this, that yeah. trend assume that it happens at an, at an accelerating rate and what you have is a lot more people willing and able to do these tasks because time is a is an asset that they have a lot more of uh because instead of working at CVS instead of being a bus driver instead of being any of these jobs that will be automated away mm-hmm. I can donate my time to this service because it may be the only thing that I can do mm-hmm. and so the, I guess the, the large uh, truly uh, macro question here is what elements of this need to remain human uh, can be made into a premium experience and which part of it will just fade away in the long term uh, and then if you take that back to the, to the current court case of, of this past week does it really matter, or is this just a, a very short-term uh, speed bump that this company has to, this company, this industry have to go over? Well, you can look at it two ways. If Uber views their fu- their future as one independent of human labor, um, then you have to look at this court case as a bump in the road where it says we need to sort out this stuff, we need to rework certain elements of our business model so that we can operate with employees instead of contractors. If, on the other hand, 
Uber views their future as saying, we will be the universal way to move things from A to B. We will be the running water that is transportation. And we will have the employees that are the resources that you use to make that happen whenever is required. Now you have a very interesting situation. Because as I alluded to earlier, if, you know, if, this, course case, if this court case resolves and it turns out that everybody has to become employees, then although that's annoying news for Uber, it's actually terrible for all the non-Ubers in the tier twos because everyone's going to go to Uber. It's going to be a winner-take-all situation. Then Uber is going to have all the drivers, and Uber can now lease out their time to other services, mm. right? Well, I was wondering, why does Instacart use their own drivers and their own pickers when they could be using Uber employees? Uber could be that API. The human API. The human API, exactly. And then, but ultimately that, you know, is not only fantastic for Uber because they form the, they perform the essential service, but they are also the ones who acquire all the data about everything, right? <laughs> While Postmates may know where mail is being delivered and Instacart may know where groceries are being delivered and some taco app may know where tacos are being eaten, Uber knows everything that's happening in the physical world that's moving around. It becomes very interesting to start looking at manual labor as an API. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was at first going to say that that's a, a sorry statement for the future of manual labor, but is it? I mean, so, so imagine when you have um, something like Uber as the distributed logistical system for the world and all of these local hubs of that system, like Instacart, that have their um, local area of expertise, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the humans are just the, the, the data stream between the two. Uh, you get this this market that becomes very efficient because uh, the um, information supply is, is becomes very optimized because it has to be. If you have something like Uber as the as the network that connects everything, uh, it's better for everyone in, in a certain sense at at this macro level. Maybe the work isn't super exciting, but but is being a personal driver super exciting today? Anyways, no. Um there's a really good parallel to this, and it's a line that Benedict Evans has said before. And it has to do with the question of, is a smartphone a luxury good? And his answer has been no, because, and he gives this as an answer, he says, if you are a, labor, a laborer in a developing country, a smartphone can double your income, because now you know where the work is. You can get to where the work is because you have a way to find out instantly. There's something, can, a text can pop up on your phone saying, I need somebody to lay bricks for me at this location at 9 o'clock. Can you do it Y slash N? Text back, yes. You know, now you have yourself a job. And if you ex bring that back into what Uber can be, in terms of actually this API for human labor, <laughs> you eliminate so much of the unnecessary time that people spend at work not really doing anything and all of the unnecessary time that people spend looking for work or looking for people to do work. Right? So it certainly eliminates the search cost of work, but I wonder if you can truly ever optimize away something like the Pareto principle where yeah. you make people... And the question is, is, maybe you can from a logistical standpoint, but do people really want to always be uh, fully efficient? Right. Well, the question then becomes... It, it's easy for uh, you know, an observer to say... That's all well and good for low-skilled jobs, but can it ever make the breakthrough to the next level of jobs that require thinking? And I don't see any reason why I can't. Um, think, about, think about Brian, uh, my friend the architect, who I was talking to this morning. He's a very highly skilled guy who has a unique 
set of tools at his disposal. But he's an on-demand worker at the end of the day, right? If a city has an art project that they need to commission, are they going to do an exhausting manual search like they did before? Wouldn't they rather use an API tool among a certain set of people who have the right skills? Well, again, we, one of the things we, we got at before was that um, a rising tide lifts all ships, right? And so if, if this becomes really efficient system and your friend Brian doesn't have to spend time searching for work that is completely eliminated from, from the blue collar all the way to the white collar end of the spectrum, uh, you're right, it does become more efficient for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in other words, would you say that you are pro-Uber becoming the API for work or somebody else? Do you think that would be a net good? So I'm not really pro or, or con this in, in general. Uh, before World War I started, uh, it was uh, Zarmin Nicholas II got a whole bunch of people together in, in a conference and said, hey, there's all these crazy new military technologies that are going to make war pretty shitty. Uh, let's get together and let's say, let's ban them. And let's stop all technical progress in this area because where it's going is a bad thing. Uh, and I think the the, uh, the the goals of the conference failed completely because, hey, guess what? World War One still happened anyways, uh, and military development kept going for the next century. So whenever there's new information that, that leads to technical advancement, it's always futile to try and stop it. So whether or not it's, it's good or bad, it will happen anyway. So the only thing that can be done is, is um, to, to push for it to happen in the right way, if possible. So... I think if, if something like the human API ends up rising, or sorry, raising all ships, in that it, it eliminates efficiencies everywhere because you have this, this um, very, very efficient uh, distributed network for uh, just about all sorts of tasks and, and labor, that's good for everyone. But, but as I think about this and I sit here and I, and I know people whose jobs have been automated away or, or whose jobs will be automated away, um, I don't think I like it on a, on a very mi- uh, um, micro scale. I can't help but think in this situation of uh, Tim Ferriss, of all people, um, the author of Four Hour Workweek, among a number of infomercially titled books, who brings up this really important fundamental question, which is when is it that we decided to value work instead of valuing output of work? Uh, when is it that we started getting paid for time on the job rather than output of the job, at least for the majority of you know the bottom ninety percent of work? You know, we're not talking about the very very highly skilled people who are paid for their intellectual horsepower, but for most people who do work for most jobs. And what is very encouraging to me about all of this is I think about, you know, my friends who are in Peter Gibbons-like situations, uh, Peter Gibbons being the title character in Office Space, who spends most of his time doing honestly nothing, and yet works for a few hours per week and gets his output done, yet has to stay at work doing nothing all day because that's what his job says he's supposed to do. And if work moves towards an API for human skills, that could very well be the tool that moves us away from work for its own sake to work for output's sake. 
And as much as that's going to have a lot of growing pains associated with it, I think it's going to lead to a very, very positive shift into humankind's relationship to work as a whole. That's an interesting point. There, there's a, I mentioned before we started that there's this, this Keynes quote that I love that I can never find when I need it, which is that you know, uh, as, productivity, as technology makes productivity um, more efficient, if you, if you project back in Keynes' time to whatever, 50 years in the future, he said, oh, people should only be working 10, 20 hours a week. And all of a sudden, here we are still working 40 hours a week. And so you, you have this, this general problem in economics that I don't think is, is solved, which is uh, as more and more things get automated and as more and more jobs get automated away, what happens to the labor force? And there are some Malthusian estimates, there are some uh, Rosie estimates, but there's not a lot of solutions on the table. Uh, but maybe the solution for all this being automated away is really making everything more efficient so that you're, as a, as a human laborer, judging your output, not your time. And, and maybe this human API, as we've, as we've dubbed it, is the way for that to happen. I think I'm, I'm drawn again back to a quote from the ever-wise comedian Louis C.K., who has a certain special way of articulating exactly what parts of our lives today are completely insane and backwards. And he has a bit where he talks about God coming back down to earth and having a chat with somebody when he's like, what did you do? I gave you everything that you needed to have wonderful lives. Why did you ruin it? He's like, oh, well, um, like, why do you just throw, like, <laughs> damn it. Like, why, you know, why don't you just eat what's on the ground? Oh, uh, it doesn't taste good. Like, I want Pop-Tarts, you know? Why, why are you wearing clothes? Oh, uh, we, we decided we were cold. And then finally, he's like, why don't you do X and Y? Because I have a job. I have work to do. What is a job? You know, this is God asking. What is a job? Why did you invent this thing? What is it for? Uh, I have to make money, I guess. What is money? Why do you need money? I gave you all the stuff on the ground that you needed to take. Why have you created this? And again, it comes back to, you know, wh why do we work? We work because we need to make money, because we need to, you know, take care of ourselves. But that should be coming from output, not from ours. And as much as there may be growing pains, as much as there may be very, very difficult struggles associated with this shift away from work for work's sake to work for output's sake, I think this could be one of the major keys that unlocks human potential and our ability to truly move towards the next step and not having to be working all the time to survive. And that's a great thing. Where you, where you want to see the future of work go is uh, that on, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we all level up. That uh, all of these blue-collar work, all this blue-collar uh, work becomes automated away, done by machines, done by automated processes. Uh, and that frees up people to get more educated and, and uh, do more uh, higher-level tasks. The question of how we get there is still very much uh, up for grabs, and I think we'll, we'll have to go through a lot more court cases like Ubers to get there. All right. That pretty much wraps it up. Thanks, Matt.